0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good afternoon. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is a special midweek episode of the podcast. Last week, the European Parliament gave initial approval to the Digital Services Act, which contains a set of regulations that will have major implications for tech platforms, including on how they moderate content and on their business models. This spring, the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union will debate the details of the legislation before voting on a final version. To learn more about what is at stake and where the DSA is in the process, I spoke with Matthias Vermeulen, Public Policy Director at the Consultancy AWO based in Brussels, Belgium. Here's Matthias.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Matthias Vermeulen, and I'm the Public Policy Director at AWO, based in Brussels, Belgium. Tell us what AWO does. So AWO is uh, what we're calling a new type of data data rights agency, which basically consists of, of three pillars. On the one hand, we are a law firm based in London. And we have been active in a number of significant uh, lawsuits, especially against some of the um, uh, bigger tech companies in this space. Like for instance, we have been representing Professor um, David Carroll in his uh, claim against Cambridge Analytica. Um, That work is being led by my colleague, Ravi Naik. Uh, Second pillar of AWO is more traditional consultancy, GDPR consultancy. Um, with there, the caveat that we are not really focusing on commercial operations, but mostly working with large foundations, universities, international organizations, the ICRC. And I'm heading the, I'm the director of the public policy part of uh, AWO, where we uh, provide advice to a range of clients, also including civil society organizations, foundations on uh, European tech policy developments uh, in general. And just a little on your background as well, because you you know had four years
0: uh, as a digital pol- policy advisor to a to a member of parliament and a notable one at that,
1: someone who's been on the show before. Oh, I I, I didn't realize actually. I'm not such an avid podcast uh, listener actually, um, but indeed, like I have been working at the uh, at European Parliament uh, as an advisor to uh, Maritje Schake, who is currently at Stanford University and a columnist at the Financial Times and a Dutch newspaper as well. Um, And before that, I was working for the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on the protection of human rights while countering terrorism for uh, a number of years. And uh, my background is that I have a PhD in European uh, data protection and privacy law. And uh, I have been working with organizations like Privacy International in the past for quite, uh, quite some time, actually.
0: Great. So with that background in mind, let's talk about what happened this week. European Parliament uh, voted on a variety of different options to regulate online ads and to advance the Digital Services Act. So can yeah. you explain for uh, my mostly American listeners uh, the process and, and kind of where we're at in it and what happened?
1: Yeah, and I'd be happy to do so because um, often if you read newspaper articles, especially from American newspapers, trying to explain this particular vote in European Parliament, like you might have the impression that we just basically signed off on a large bill that would regulate uh, some of the big technology companies in this space from next week onwards. Um, but the fact is that we are not really there yet and that we are like, uh, that we still need to take a couple of steps before we arrive at that specific point. So basically, basically to summarize what has happened until now was in uh, December of last year, no, two years ago, actually already in December 2020, the European Commission issued its uh, long awaited proposal for a digital services act. And um, basically, the Digital Services Act proposal was an update of the e-commerce directive in the European Union, which is sort of the equivalent of, of section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act in, in the US, basically. And um, it, was a, it's, it was a really ambitious proposal in the sense that like it's one of its main aims is to broadly harmonize the process in which uh, users can notify illegal content to the platforms after which the platforms actually then have to um, take that down or take any other content moderation practices. Until now, every single European member state had slightly different timeframes and different procedures for how such a notes and action system worked. And the, one of the, of the aims of the Digital Services Act was to harmonize all these procedures and have like a specific set of rules for all these different companies in all the, in all the different member states, basically. But then like a, a very big second part of that and the most innovative part, I think, of that proposal was that it also created this sort of a tier transparency set like a tiered set of transparency obligations for a range of different entities ranging from intermediaries um, what they're calling ordinary platforms and then a very specific category of so-called very large online platforms and basically the the commission really um, I think took inspiration from the infamous Spiderman quote like with great power come great responsibilities and so they defined these like this sort of this, this specific category of platforms as very large online platforms, which are platforms with um, more than forty five million monthly active users. And that figure sort of roughly corresponds with ten percent of the uh, population of the overall population of the European Union. And sort of the idea of the European Commission was, like well, These specific platforms, they play such a crucial role in facilitating our public debate, in sort of safeguarding people's freedom of speech, they are so, so important, so important from an economic perspective as well, that um, we can ask a little bit more in terms of transparency obligations and um, other responsibilities compared to much smaller um, platforms who don't have the same sort of scale and and reach, basically. Um, and so, what happened is there that. Um, um, I think sort of the, the really the crucial part of the of this new set of due diligence obligations is that uh, very large online platforms, they will now be forced to make a risk assessment of the a, a whole set of societal risks that their products and design decision can cause, for instance, like for instance, to give you an example, they would need to um, assess in advance the extent to which their products could lead to um, uh, specific categories of people being exposed to illegal content, as defined in one of the 27 European member states, actually. Or they would need to assess to what extent um, um, some of their targeting practices could lead to uh, users seeing discriminatory ads, for instance, like job ads only being directed towards uh, certain categories of male people, or not being shown to people of color, for instance. And then there's a couple of different definitions on of of societal risks. And the idea is then, like after such an an uh, a broad risk assessment, companies would need to take risk mitigating measures. And I think the strength of the proposal is that it doesn't really say specifically. Um, well, if you ha- have been exposed to a specific uh, piece of illegal content, for instance, you are forced to take it down. But it says like, well, companies, they have actually the freedom to decide what, what would be the most effective, necessary, or proportionate content moderation decision. Is it, for instance, to demonetize a specific piece of content? Is it to um, sort of derank it a little bit more? Or is it to remove it, to remove it after all? And then after these risk mitigating measures have been taken, um, the the European Commission proposed there to be an independent audit, which can then check whether these risk mitigating measures have actually um, been necessary and effective. For instance, if a platform has identified uh, that their recommendation system um, disproportionately exposed people to COVID-19 misinformation, for instance, And it thought like, well, one of the risk mitigating measures that we see is to apply a couple of fact-checking techniques on that. Then this independent auditor sort of in theory should then assess to what extent those fact-checking efforts have been effective, actually. And so I think that is a little bit this more of sort of a systematic approach to content moderation, which moves us away from the whole whack-a-mole approach of like, is a piece of content really Illegal, not illegal, um, who should define what is harmful content and so on. That's a little bit more sort of the the systemic approach. So long story short, and there's many different aspects of the original proposal that we could um, go into long story short, that proposal came out in December of 2020. And then all throughout 2021 in last year, we have two different European entities who then sort of, um, Started looking at the text. You have the European Council, where all the heads of governments and relevant ministers are sort of sitting together. On the one hand, and on the other hand, you have the European Parliament. I want to, before we get into the specifics of the amendment process and
0: and some yeah. of the decisions that were taken this week, you know, you mentioned your work on 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 GDPR, uh, General uh, Data Protection reg- Regulation. How does the DSA uh, fit within that? Sort of framework or relate to that framework into the kind of broader uh, EU tech regulation uh, space? Can you kind of explain uh, how these pieces fit together?
1: It's a very good question and there's a long and a short answer to that. Um, And probably we don't have enough time to really get into the long answer. Um, But in a nutshell, like the Digital Services Act is what in EU lingo is called a horizontal instrument. So everything that's being written down there in terms of new obligations and responsibilities will apply to every single platform, very large online platform or intermediary. Um, At the same time, all these companies, they're also bound by this other horizontal instrument, which which is the GDPR. Now, it's going to depend on what the final text will look like. To see how these two instruments will actually interplay with each other. But what is really clear is that like every single new type of obligation that is being created um, for a specific platform, for instance, there is a very impactful new article, which would basically force um, platforms to hand over data, including personal data, um, to academic researchers or to auditors. Like that whole process, that whole um, uh, sharing infrastructure and all the mechanisms that you would need to um, set up to make that happen, all those would need to be GDPR compliant. And sort of that is going to take quite some um, imagination and thinking of how that is going to work exactly. But what, what often happens in in uh, EU legislative debates is that, you, that the European Commission and the Council and the Parliament, they're just... Um, Uh, Deliberately ignoring that specific problem and they want to sort of what they will do is like they will first agree on a broad set of general principles in the Digital Services Act. And then in a separate process, once we have agreed on the DSA and all these principles and new short um, uh, articles, they will draft up these nitty-gritty details on how, for instance, the access to data regime needs to be GDPR compliant in a so-called delegated act, which is actually sort of a separate piece of legislation that focuses on on that one specific, um, uh, one specific topic. For instance, like, and this is going to happen, like, how can you make access to platform data for researcher GDPR compliant? And then you can have a document. Which is probably by itself going to be as long as the whole DSA actually, and so it's sort of the principles will be in the DSA, and then the actual thinking too on how are we going to do this in practice. That's going, that's being pushed aside for a moment, and we'll solve it, solve it later, basically.
0: So let's talk about some of these specific amendments and some of the things that were really, uh, I guess, at play in the conversations uh, in in Parliament. Um, There was was a lot of uh, discussion around uh, targeted ads, uh, what to do about targeted ads. Um, In the U.S., that's been a a, a point of discussion this week, as we've had uh, a a senator and a couple of of, of congressional representatives put forward a uh, proposed bill banning uh, surveillance advertising, Um, What is the DSA going to do about targeted advertising?
1: So um, this is indeed sort of has been one of the few, I would say, politically controversial topics on what should the European do? What should the European Union be doing on top of what already exists? And this is huge implications for the business models of. Exactly. Exactly. and in theory, I think if you really look at um, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation and its, um, its uh, cousin, like the e-privacy director, um, if you really read through the letter of the law and some of the, the principles and practices that are already outlawed by the GDPR, um, then you would actually um, you would easily come to the conclusion that you don't actually need any type of extra legislation to sort of ban targeted ads, whatever that may mean. And we can come back to that in in a second, actually. And so I think, um, for instance, the original European Commission proposal, nothing was really being said about banning targeted ads. But the purpose of the Commission proposal was more like, well, there is still a lot that we don't know about how the online ad tech ecosystem works. And uh, we are going to impose like very specific transparency obligations that make that whole ad tech supply chain system much more transparent. Um, so that's like that was sort of how far the European Commission wanted to go. But then, and then in the council, where the heads of government said like they agreed with that approach, approach basically. And he said, like, yes, we have already GDPR, we have already the e-privacy directive. Um, those two instruments of law, they will deal they deal already with like to what extent large companies, what they can do with our personal data, how they can use that data to target people, and so on. But the parliament, or at least like a significant part of the European Parliament said, like, well, that might be right. And if you really read the letter of the law correctly, then that is even possibly right. But um, we acknowledge as an institution that there is a really big enforcement problem of the GDPR. So that might be true that we have those laws on the books, but actually nothing really happens because for a whole variety of reasons, the law as itself isn't actually being enforced. And then um, you had a couple of, of political groups, especially from the left of the political spectrum, like the Greens and the Social Democrats, which argued like, well, many of these um, societal problems that are being caused or allegedly being caused by very large online platforms, like the spreading of um, misinformation, hate speech, and so on, they are actually the result of the quote unquote business model, which focuses on targeted ads. And so if the DSA wants to focus on these negative societal effects, we have to do more beyond the GDPR in this digital services act. Um, and it, it was sort of like a, an, an, a long discussion, uh, like the European Commission didn't really agree they, for a long time, uh, like the European Council, they also didn't really agree with that analysis. And so there was like a whole range of measures that was being proposed, like you had the far left proposing an actual ban to use personal data and to use profiling techniques for every single actor, a really ban on targeted ads. That was not agreed uh, upon by a majority in the European Parliament. So there was no majority um, for that. Then we entered into sort of like a couple of more nuanced um, provisions, for instance, um, and I think a really important one, uh, what is not what was being uh, approved now in the European Parliament is a ban on actual dark patterns so basically companies trying to uh, quote-unquote trick you into consenting that your personal data can be used for targeted advertising and you can only use their service if you press consent and consent is then uh, most of the time uh, in like a very large green button and you really have to like scroll through the page to find like I decline uh, to to see that option like so like to regulate basically sort of the design options of like how you show and how you give your consent actually so that got um, that got a majority in the in European Parliament right now um, and I think sort of like Uh, Lots of the of the proponents of such uh, a ban on dark patterns, they also see this as a way to end these infamous cookie banners that many website visitors in the EU are always, always getting. And the idea sort of that they're having is that um, if this passes in the final version of the Digital Services Act, then sort of if you indicate in your browser, for instance, and indicate that you refuse tracking, that that will be binding and you would never have to sort of press consent on any sort of um, uh, web page, um, basically. So that's uh, the kind
0: of thing that would that's the kind of thing that would have to really um, see how it plays out. Right. Uh, you know, what is a dark pattern? Um, how should these consent mechanisms work? The legislation doesn't say that exactly. I assume still companies and ultimately in some kind of regulatory back and
1: forth. We're gonna have to figure out what that looks like and how the how the consumer internet changes. Yeah, exactly. And for instance, like I'm talking now about sorry, wait, I'm just I'm just gonna check for the exact language because I happen to have it in front of me right now. So until now I have indeed been sort of talking about a ban on dark patterns, but the actual text of the amendment that was voted on doesn't mention this term. It really speaks about online interface design and its organization. And so it already gives a couple of clues of practices that could be considered as dark patterns. For instance, like when a very specific provision gives more visual prominence to any of the consent options Or if you repeatedly request a person, do you really want to um, object to the uh, processing of your personal data and so on? So there are already a number of elements in there, but I'm pretty sure that these are still going to be uh, going to be tweaked actually. And I think like the third big thing that was voted on in terms of of targeted ads, was this sort of um, ban on using sensitive data, which is data that can reveal your political opinion or your sexual orientation, um, and prohibit advertisers of using that specific category of data to um, target you with ads, which I think like many um, sort of privacy lawyers and data protection experts in the EU would argue that that was actually already prohibited um, if you look at the GDPR, um, but I think there is this one word which also speaks about inferred data um, that basically isn't covered by the GDPR and which would actually uh, broaden the scope of the types of data that would be prohibited to use to show you uh, personalized ads, actually. And so this is, this is basically what has been um, agreed on by the European Parliament with relatively stable majorities. And now the big question is, and, and we come back now to where we are in, in the process, basically, what has happened this week as the European Parliament has signed off now on its negotiation position, and from next week onwards, now the European Council and the European Parliament, they're going to negotiate with each other at least for three to six months in the, the most optimal, um, uh, the most the quickest scenario, basically. And um, on the basis of their negotiations, we will arrive at the final text of the Digital Services Act, um, which we expect to be adopted at the very, very earliest, around the 8th of April, which is just before the the French presidential elections. And if that isn't going to succeed, we will probably have a deal by the beginning of summer, uh, sort of the 14th of July, like we are really focusing on French events and French national holidays. Um, Also, because France has the presidency of the the European Union, uh, the first six months of of this year. And then like companies, they get a couple of months to implement those obligations before it actually becomes the law of the land in the European Union. And then we're speaking about uh, the first quarter of 2023, when all this will become um, reality, actually. So...
0: Let me just ask you about a couple of other elements, just to for the listener to understand um, how th- these things will play out. The provisions around speech and around harmful content. Um, I understand that that will still, to some extent, leave it to EU member states to make their own decisions about what is, uh, you know, legal, illegal, certain forms of speech that may be regulated country by country.
1: Um, yes. How does that work? How does that work in practice? It, we could like fill like a full episode with this particular question, but in a nutshell, it's indeed sort of national member states of the European Union, they have the competence to um, uh, sort of decide for themselves what types of speech they deem to be illegal. And this reflects like national sensitivities, for instance, what's the word in English now? I can't find it. Um, Holocaust speech? Holocaust denial, for instance, like, is really like criminalized in a couple of, uh, in a couple of uh, EU countries. Um, in other countries you have very specific ideas about like what is considered to be hate speech or not. And the European Union has said like there is still so much differences among EU member states. We, are, we will leave it to the uh, national member states to decide like what is legal and what is, what is not illegal actually. And so I think I, you have to make a distinction between illegal content and then sort of actions from the platforms that are seen as, as systemic risks. Like the, 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 the DSA doesn't define what harmful content is like com- compared to the UK's online safety bill, for instance, but it, it speaks about systemic risks that can be the result of um, specific activities from, from the platforms actually. And so for the first part of the DSA is like when somebody notifies to a platform that they think like a, an illegal piece of content has been has been found or is still on their website, they have to file a notice. A company then needs to, uh, that notice needs to be, um, there's like a, a couple of characteristics that's uh, need to be mentioned on that specific specific notice notice. Actually, a company then needs to respond within a given time frame and then remove if it's really a, a piece of illegal content. Actually, whereas whether it's like a piece of um, you have like a slightly different system when a, a piece of content is not illegal but violates the terms of services of a specific um, uh, company as well. Actually, then it's then it's really sort of much more left to the discretion of the um, company to decide whether something can uh, is in violation of their terms of services and um, what the other measures, other than removing that type of content is, that would be the most appropriate to apply. And then indeed, you were talking about demonetizing specific pieces, uh, stop recommending specific categories of people, um, issue temporary bans on users. So then like your whole catalog of potential options is much wider than this binary let's leave it up or take it down um, decision actually.
0: Are there other peculiarities of the DSA that you feel like uh, people should understand? I mean, I know there are some specific provisions, for instance, around advertising to children, um, other elements around children. Are there, are there other things that you think of as, as peculiarities?
1: Um. So Yes. So like this, um, this ban on um, showing targeted ads towards kids that is in there as well. You could argue that that was sort of already covered by the GDPR, but I think it's it's good to have that explicitly in another piece of, of legislation with different enforcement mechanisms um, there as well. Um, I do think that like one of the most important elements of the DSA, which also are interesting for for the United States, for that matter, is the the whole provision that actually forces companies to hand over platform data to auditors, regulators, or independent researchers. I think that is absolutely crucial to really develop a body of evidence that really um, demonstrates to a certain extent, like what the what the actual scales are of, of the problem that we're talking about. Like we shouldn't be um, uh, depending on anecdotal stories about YouTube's recommendation system, for instance, or we shouldn't be relying on, on whistleblowers like Francis Hogan who come up with sort of internal Facebook research to demonstrate like, okay, this is actually the real scale of the problem, but sort of like, like setting up this mechanism that would allow third-party audits or scrutiny from these from these big companies. I think that is going to um, be tremendously helpful not only for citizens and regulators in the EU but also um, beyond actually. And I think you that's also okay, sort of the DSA is important from a content moderation perspective, but you really should see it as a sort of data generation generating machine as well that would allow probably in the future much more targeted, interventions on a range of, of very specific um, problems, actually. So I think this whole access to data and the ability to, quote unquote, look under the hoods of, of some of these platforms, I think that's that's probably going to be the the one provision that is um, going to have like the biggest impact in, in, in practice.
0: There are a lot of folks in the US who have kind of come to the conclusion that the EU is going to be the de facto regulator of our Silicon Valley companies uh, for better or for worse. Um, but I, I want to kind of get the also just a sense of the, the politics of the DSA in these, in these next months. Um, how would you describe uh, the forces that have aligned in opposition to, to DSA and what are their prospects at this point um, and the forces that support it and what are their prospects at this moment? I mean, I assume there are some, uh, interesting coalitions that have formed around it.
1: Um, I think sort of the what has surprised I think most observers of this particular piece of legislation is the actual speed to which the different political parties were able to come to an agreement on all these specific uh, topics that we that we just discussed, like. I think if you would have asked anyone two to three years ago, how long is it going to take to arrive at the final Digital Services Act? People would have said like, it's going to take us equally as long as the GDPR. So three, four or five years before we will actually see a final piece of legislation. But quite surprisingly, it's, there is really a very high level of agreement from all the political groups from the left to the right, um, that we need to impose and create more responsibilities and obligations for, especially for this specific category of, of very large um, online platforms actually. So the, I think there is a lot of agreement on, on the structure of the Digital Service Act and its broad principles, such as like um, the bigger you are, the more your transparency obligations are capacities for third-party investigation and scrutiny, um, not sort of relying on self-regulation and the word and transparency reports that these companies voluntarily provide and so on, um, like a unified note of, uh, notice and action um, uh, provision. I think there was like a lot of agreement among all the mainstream political parties. Um, I think the... the the most resistance until now that we have seen come from um, companies like Poland, uh, Hungary, um, which are, are having a number of significant issues with freedom of speech domestically as well. And where many of the ruling political parties are heavily relying on some of these very large, prof- um, very large platforms to reach their audiences, to boost their messages and so on. And so, for instance, some of the the censorship arguments that you often hear in the US coming from, especially the Republican side of the aisle, um, those resonated a little bit among sort of Hungarian, Polish MEPs, Slovenia as well, for instance, where you have um, slightly more right-wing governments in, in, in power these days um but i think other other than that there is like a very um strong agreement maybe except for this role of how you could how you should regulate online ads in the dsa but other than that i think there is a really surprising actually big agreement on this original text of the european commission and i think i think that that sort of you have to give a lot of credits for the European commission to come up with like a relatively good proposal to begin with in the first place, because I still remember in sort of three years ago um, when at the height of sort of peak Brexit, Donald Trump and so on, um, and the emergence of, for instance, national fake speech laws in, in outlawing different types of speech in the, in the European union. Um, we really discussed at one point, the option of getting rid of the whole principle of intermediary liability altogether. And I think if that would have been, for instance, in the proposal of the European Commission, we would have had a much more difficult and toxic debate. But I think this, this whole idea that indeed, um, you shouldn't hold platforms liable for the content that their users are uploading, except for like a, a category of really egregious uh, sets of examples that are defined by national laws that that should like you should always be able to say what you want on these on the, on these platforms. I think that that the fact that this principle of intermediary liability was kept in, the fact that platforms shouldn't monitor everything that's happening on their on their sites, the so-called no general monitoring obligation, that that was uh, retained as well. Um, really, sort of um, um, created this 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 big sense of agreement from, on on lots of different uh, sides, actually. And sort of, it's really the EU is really focusing not on actual pieces of content, and like they often said, like this this very um, word out line now, like we don't want to be, become this like Ministry of Truth. And I think it makes this very good idea to focus on on processes. And to hold platforms responsible for things they can actually be held responsible for, for like the design of specific um, uh, features or um, determining what to show in people's newsfeeds, for instance, those are things that you can hold platforms accountable for. And you shouldn't be hold them accountable for every single individual piece of content that, that a user uh, wants to express on their, on their platforms, actually. What role has industry lobbying played in this process? It's a favorite topic for many um, publications. And of course, there has been a massive lobbying campaign from a lot of different players, right? Not only the Google and Facebook of this world, but also, for instance, cloud providers who really didn't want to be included in the scope of the Digital Services Act. You had publishers who wanted to prevent, uh, who basically asked that, platforms uh, would give specific publications a heads up before taking any content moderation, um, before making any content moderation decision. You had lots of NGOs and civil society organizations getting active as well. I think there has been, especially on the topic of online ads, Um, the companies were very active with like a very big campaign on both online in prints and on billboards. Like you couldn't walk around Brussels without bumping into a Facebook advertisement saying like targeted ads are good for the economy. And this is what is going to um, get us out of the economic recession after COVID and and so on. Um, So definitely like lots of money was thrown at uh, that lobbying campaign. At the same time, I think most of the companies were uh, potentially even more worried about the Digital Markets Act, which focuses more on the antitrust and competition aspects of this, because there every single word and comma can have like a direct consequence on your on your business model. Um, and I, but I do think that in indeed in general sort of the 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 whole the context of the tech clash and that especially members of the European Parliament were were quite united in their sort of determination to create sort of new rules for what they are calling the the wild west online or or any of these of these other metaphors um and i do so but i do think at the same time um the strength of the of the lobbying power of the big platforms has never been has, hasn't been as strong in the European Parliament as it is towards the European Council. For instance, like many of the civil society groups, um, they are organized in Brussels and they form coalitions in Brussels, but they are they are much less, uh, they are not as well-equipped as the platforms in all the capitals, for instance, in, 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 in Prague or in Amsterdam or in Vienna, whereas all the companies, of course, like they do have... Um, specific offices in the member states they are much more aware of what's happening in those capitals and so they have a, a much bigger influence on the positions of of the governments of the member states actually and so that's why like now you always have like a slightly more conservative position in the European council and a more progressive if you want to call it like that um, position in the European parliaments and traditionally the real lobbying power of industry is much bigger in, in, in the negotiation process that we're now going to enter. So I think like many of the of the very progressive things that are in the text of European Parliament will not end up probably in the final text, partly because that's the nature of politics and people and organizations negotiate with each other. Um, but also because I think the, the lobbying power of some of the companies that would be affected by the Digital Services Act is much is much stronger vis-a-vis national governments than to members of the European Parliament.
0: So I just have one last question. When you take into consideration the progress on uh, tech regulation in the EU over the last uh, so many years from GDPR through to the DSA, are you optimistic that you're going to be able to address the harms and the real problems that have been at play. Are you feeling that progress has been made uh, and progress that is commensurate with the challenge?
1: I mean, I think you have, we have uh, a moral duty to be optimistic uh, in this sense. And I do think that what's on the table right now in the European union is our best shots at tackling some of these big societal challenges that are being caused by the behavior of online platforms. And in that sense, and I mean, of course, everything is still, like nothing is decided until everything is decided. So if you ask me again in six months, I can have like a very different uh, opinion. But based on on the positions of both European Council and about European Parliament, I am pretty optimistic that um, this is really... Um, the best that we can do at this point in time, and I, like I said, like I really expect a lot from the DSA in terms of getting us much more information about what actually the causal effects are of some of the um, design feature, product decisions that some of these companies have been making, and what their effects are on our on our um, societies, basically. So um, yes, I am uh, I am optimistic. And um, I just hope that um, relatively soon, sort of the US can follow suit and um, um, maybe arrive at a set of joint principles with the European Union. I know there is the EU US Tech and Trade Council where there are talks about sort of like, okay, what can we agree on in sort of the transatlantic relationship? Um, but yes, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I think um, this is as good as it's going to get for, for quite some time, actually. Well, Matthias, thank
0: you so much for taking the time to walk us through all of that. And I hope your optimism bears out, not just in the EU, but with regard to the potential for the United States to follow suit as well.
1: Fingers crossed.
0: That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guest. And thank you for listening.
1: Tech Policy
0: Press.